Hello, Hoopaholics. It's Coach Spins back here on the Boxing One podcast. And I know I feel like I say it every time, but no ceilings is everywhere, man. We've had so many of their guys here on our podcast as guests. And, and the godfather of no ceilings, Nathan Grubel, is going to be our guest joining us here today. Nathan, how are you? Oh, man, we, we were talking about it. You and I are, are a little tired today. We're, we're, we're not going to lie. However, you saved quite the podcast for a day like this. This, what we're going to talk about tonight, this is this is what gets the people going. This is going to put a little pep in my step. So I, I'm well, Adam. Thank you. Good, good. A pleasure to have you here. Uh, you and the entire No Ceilings crew are doing an, an unbelievable job covering the draft, particularly this draft cycle. I mean, it, it literally feels like you are everywhere. And that's a good thing because we have a lot to learn from you and the work that you all do. Uh, but our goal today, is to discuss the top five, and we'll get there in a moment. But as you know, Nathan, we have a tradition with all of our guests here the first time they come on the podcast, and we want to make sure that we live up to that with you. So in that honor, your team is up three with five seconds to go, and it's the other team's ball. Do you foul? What is it that you would instruct your team to do? Haven't we gotten to the point where we just instruct the foul? Isn't that where we are in basketball now? Or are we still given another answer where we're going to trust to the kind of play? I guess you, you can try and go the route of, you know, full court defense and trust your team to make the right play. But I think at that point you, you have to foul, right? That, that would be what I would do. Okay. Okay. It's, it's a very mixed response. Most people lean towards fouling, but I have heard some pretty good arguments for playing it out, uh, particularly with trusting the defense. If that's, you know, something that you preach and the identity of your team is defensive minded, why go away from that in a late game situation? Wouldn't be saying, Hey guys, we're going to foul to make sure that we win this game, kind of devalue the spirit of what you teach on that end. And, And I guess I understand that, right? The numbers, bear out pretty evenly either way. So it's more about personal preference, uh, but it does seem like most people are trending towards fouling these days. I guess the counter is if, if you foul immediately on the inbounds, right? Like let's say, so you said there's five seconds left, you yeah. foul, there's like four point what, 4.2. So let's say like almost a second comes off the clock. Other team makes the two free throws. You're up one, you inbound the ball. They foul immediately. So let's call it like a little over three seconds left your team either bricks one of the free throws or you break both of the free throws. Then all of a sudden time out. And then, then, then we're talking about not even a miracle play anymore. Right now we're talking about, you can get a much better shot than just a, a miracle. heave. So I, I guess if that's the argument, then I can see playing it out on that last possession, but I think I would slip foul. Oh, there, I mean, always a ton of variables in a late game situation and you've got to be able to foul at the right time. Make sure it's not a, a shooting foul or three yep. shots trust your inbounders and free throw makers, right? Trust that they're not going to be able to get an offensive rebound if they intentionally miss, or if they just happen to miss their second free throw, like all of that stuff matters. Absolutely. And it's again, personal preference is a huge part of that. But I, as I always say, KYP baby, know your personnel. Yes, sir. Nathan, again, we set our goal here is to talk about the top five in the 2022 NBA draft class. And, I think that there's a pretty firm group of four that are in there for either both of us or for most people Uh, might be a little bit fluid in terms of order. So that's what we can discuss a little bit with that top four and then round things out by going into kind of where we are with number five. But consensus seems to be shifting as the season ends, as the NCAA tournament 
stands most recently in a lot of our minds. And as you know, draft scouts like you and I get to dive back in there a little bit more and just watch the film from a holistic perspective. Uh, so I, I think that we're going to have really fascinating conversation on each and every one of these guys. And I, I think the obvious place to start is for somebody that both you and I have had number one yeah. on our boards for most of the, the this draft cycle thus far, and that's Chet Holmgren. Um, you know, it seems like he's falling a little bit out of that top spot in the eyes of many, at least on the consensus there. And I don't know if that's course correction or slippage due to the early exit in March Madness or if it's just overblown concerns over his weight and his size, but he does seem to be falling a little bit out of what I thought he had a pretty good stranglehold on that top pick maybe a month or so ago. Where are you at with Chet? Why is he your number one overall prospect? And how do you address any of those concerns that seem to be going on in the mainstream? He's still number one for me. I The only time I did not have him number one was in that, that late December, early January period where it seemed like Jabari Smith was just making every single jump shot he took. And when you factor in what, what are the, some of the most important things the NBA values today, it's obviously being able to make shots from the perimeter if you are an elite shot maker, as well as play versatile defense, right? Be able to essentially, it maybe if you're not elite, but you're very good in multiple coverages, you're able to hold your own on the perimeter, trap double, and then offer some sort of rim protection and or rim deterrence. It seemed like Jabari Smith was on his way to doing a lot of those things. And I know we'll definitely talk about him. But Chet, Chet is, Chet's so special, man. And, and I think there's a lot of different ways you could go with arguments as to why someone might have Chet number one. But as I was talking about, good friend of, of my podcast, better friend to your podcast, CJ Marchesani, him and I did a podcast earlier, a few months ago. And we were talking about some of the top guys and, and him and I were in complete agreement. We were so much in lockstep. I don't think we spent enough time maybe on chat, but his, his IQ and how he processes the game on both ends, I, I think is the main thing that separates him from me. I don't think any of the other guys we're going to talk about in this conversation, see the game the way that he does. Mm-hmm. And is there somebody who ha- possesses better athleticism when you factor in speed and verticality and quickness and burst and all those things. We're going to talk about Jay Ivey. So he would win in that conversation. Is Paolo Bencaro more of a fluid ball handler, somebody who you would trust to make decisions off of a live dribble and be able to get into his shot better off of a live dribble? Absolutely. But we, we've seen time and time again in the NBA, if you process the game at such a high level and you're able to see things before they happen, some of those athletic concerns can be mitigated to an extent. Um, now, is, is there still a chance where Chet gets beat off the dribble and he's not able to get back and recover in time and somebody who's just a much quicker athlete than him can get around him? Absolutely. But I think the majority of the time, Chet just sees things and is able to react defensively before they happen. And when you combine that anticipation along with his length, even on the perimeter away from the basket, he can still swallow up guys on the perimeter, which I think definitely makes him special, but obviously around the basket, Adam, I mean, come on, do we really have to argue about who's the best shot blocker in this class? Like he does things. I can't even, I I really can't recall evaluating a shot blocker who it doesn't matter how pushed back he is into the basket or underneath the basket, I should say, yet he still gets his hand on somebody else's shot. His anticipation, his timing, 
it's, it's absolutely special, special stuff. But then offensively, I'm very curious to see where you're at on his offense. I think there's, I think there's a lot more to unlock to his offense, man. I, I, I really do. Like I watch chat and I see some of the things he can do handling the ball in the full court, but even in on some half court possessions where he's able to take one to two dribbles and then either use his long strides to get to the basket or even kind of bring the ball back a little bit and go to a pull-up jump shot, which I think is in his bag. I just don't think he got to showcase it enough. And I guess my, my counter question to you about his offense would be if he got the ball in more spots this year, like Paolo, like Jabari, and was able to operate more often from those same spots on the floor to showcase more of that face-up versatility to his offensive game, don't you think he'd be more of a slam dunk pick as number one if he wasn't just the play finisher on offense? Yes and no. Um, so offensively, I do have concerns about Chet as far as being a self-creator in the half court. I love the fluidity of his ball handling, his ability to rebound and run. I think it's an important skill for a lot of front court guys to have in today's NBA. And he'd be great at it, but especially in the playoffs, which becomes a little bit more of a half court game. uh, I don't see him as a one-on-one separator. What he is really good at is he has one signature move which is kind of this drive with his right hand. He sees that he's about to be cut off because he's not the fastest guy in the world. Long first step, but not incredibly quick. And as soon as he's about to get cut off, he spins back to his left and he has phenomenal touch with his non-dominant hand. Phenomenal touch. And I think that that's a move that can and will be able to work at the NBA level. But I don't know if it's diverse enough to say, hey, this is a guy that I want to play through in isolation every single time because he just he needs a little bit more in his bag. There is some sort of a, a counter fadeaway jump shot in there. I think his mechanics as a pull up jumper in the mid range are a tad slow. Um, but if I'm drafting Chet number one overall, which at this point I still would do, it is because he's finishing over 64 percent at the rim you know, 39% from three, he's going to be a a good spot up threat, a good pick and pop guy. He is incredibly smart. And I think that whether it's making one more passes on the perimeter, just attacking a closeout and making the right play, being paired with a really good guard where he can create off the short roll. Those are the situations that we didn't see much at Gonzaga that I think he can be used in a little bit more where his playmaking pops, but not necessarily his scoring. If that makes sense. It makes a hundred percent sense. And I, I think that that's really the most of what you and I are, are after. And I'm not, I wouldn't ask him to become or try to become this elite off the dribble shot maker. But I think, like I said, if, if there's, there's certain opportunities where you have to kind of get him in, in, in some of those mid post situations, working around the elbow, I think that he's, he's just somebody who you can question if his mechanics are a little slower or not, but he's still so long. He's yeah. so big. He will shoot over guys. Like it, I, the main concern that I think people have about him offensively, if you try to make him into something more than what he might be is because of his frame, because of his lack of strength. If he gets going off the bounce, you can push him off of his spots and you can kind of jar him away from getting himself more downhill, which I agree with. And I think my main concerns as unsexy of an answer as it is, they are, they do come back to the body. And it's, it's because when you go back and you watch the film, you realize he does hit the ground a lot. 
right? Yep. It's, it's not just on defense or getting pushed around. A lot of it is on offense when he tries to get to the basket or he tries to, even on some plays where he does have some really awesome and one finishes, he's still kind of falling over and falling down. Um, and, and those are things, I think that's why people are more concerned about the body. I don't know if it's just because they think he has like an injury history because he, he doesn't and no. he got out of the season without a scratch. But I think when you, when you are somebody who is that big, and you're always falling down, hitting the ground. It's the same reason why, I mean, I'm a Philly guy. I'm a 76ers guy. And I'm watching Joel Embiid hit the ground like every other possession. And as all those fans are, you're, you're, you're holding your breath like, oh, my God, like I pray that this isn't the play that that causes a major injury. I don't think I'd be as concerned about that with Chet, but that's, that's probably what concerns me about his offensive game the most. I, I agree with you. I think that whatever team drafts him needs to find more ways to take advantage of his passing because it is such an underrated skill. He has really good vision. He just wasn't, he wasn't put into enough positions to necessarily show that off in volume at Gonzaga. Like even when you break down like isolations, including passes per synergy, he was only involved in 15 of those possessions that they graded out post-ups, including passes. He was only involved in 58 of those possessions that they graded out. I want to see those numbers up. I want to see him with the ball in his hands more often in the right spots where he's not asked to be this elite pull-up shot maker. Um, and, and I do want to see some of those things better accentuated because when when he is just a play finisher, he's awesome. He's in like the 99th percentile in terms of offense. He's in the 99th percentile finishing around the basket, but that's not all that I think he's capable of. And I think that's that's the main thing, in my opinion, that's really holding him back from being the number one pick is that people question not only the body, but also the type of offensive ceiling that he has. And I still think he has so many skills there. There are so many more ways than people want to acknowledge for him to get to like that 18 to 20 points per game that you would want to see from somebody who you're selecting the number one overall pick. Yeah, I certainly agree with that. Um, you know, he is he's such a unique prospect, man. Like yep. there is, there is no comparison for what we've seen before. A lot of people want to talk about Evan Mobley, right? Because he's a really good defender who recently came out of the draft, similar ish body types by being long and seven feet tall and a little bit skinny, but Chet is longer. Chet is much more of a fluid off the bounce kind of guy. You know, my, my thing with Mobley a year ago was he was a very patient driver where he would not try to you know, long stride around anybody. Like he would dribble the ball right at his hip yep. to his side. He'd have a defender on him. He'd come to a, a split step or a, a jump stop, and he'd reverse pivot into a fadeaway or a hook shot. And Chet is a little bit more fluid off the bounce. He seeks out contact a lot yep. more than somebody that like Mobley does. And that, not just the mentality, but his ability to do it time and time again. Like, yes, he is really tall and has a, a skinny body and a high center of gravity, he's going to fall down a lot and get pushed around a little bit, but he's not scared. Of it. He knows how to handle that contact. He finishes through it around it. Uh, I like guys that can do that. And I think that in the NBA, which is increasingly more creative with how to use guys who are, you know, unique skill sets and multi-positional defenders, a guy like Chet is going to really thrive in the right system. Don't you think in a way it's a little bit of a silver lining that his body has kind of stayed the way that it has because he's, he's, he's always been one of the tallest guys in the court. He's always been the longest guy in the court, but he's never been, he's never been the biggest guy likely mm -hmm. on the court in terms of weight and strength. And I think over time you just get to a point where 
if you understand some of the limitations that you have, you learn how to work around them. And mm -hmm. this is something I said to, to Tyler Metcalf in, in one of our No Ceilings chats the other day was that he, he just, he doesn't put himself in harm's way. He doesn't do things where he knows that he's going to be put in a position where he's likely going to get hurt apart from the times that we see him hit the ground just because he's trying to be aggressive on offense, right? Like defensively, he doesn't put himself in harm's way. And I know he has foul trouble to an extent, which I know is something that you would probably want to hit on. Listen, I, I think some of these calls that he got during the season were a little raw. They're a little bit yeah. of a raw deal, to be honest, but that that that's probably the one thing defensively that that I would really want to quote unquote nitpick, um, but just in terms of like the physicality behind defense and even on some types of plays offensively, he doesn't he he understands who he is and what his limitations are, and I think just being that smart and that self aware, I think that's a strength. I'm glad that he has. So in a way, it is like I said, a silver lining that he kind of is who he is, and he's been that way for years. Yeah. I mean, understanding your limitations and learning to work around them. Like, that's the story of my pickup life, man. Like I just, I just don't, I don't drive. I, I, I stand on the perimeter and let somebody else do all the work. There's, there's no doubt about that. But um, now with, with Chet and the fouls, like I don't necessarily see him as being somebody who fouls too much. I see his body type, his frame, his desire for contact as making him really hard to officiate. Yep. Because when you have not a lot of meat on your bones in your chest and your core and you get run into at full speed, even if you're vertical, your chest is going to bow. Your arms are going to come down a little bit and establishing verticality looks like a foul. We saw that a lot in the Arkansas game, a lot. Yep. And that's one of those small things that hey, over time, he's going to be okay. He's still going to be an incredibly impactful shot blocker. Right. He's going to add more functional strength to him but early on in his career in particular, and just in general with the frame that he has, he's going to be a tough whistle. And, and I think that that's not a negative. It's just something to expect and deal with. He's going to have to pick and choose his battles, right? I think it's like the best possible way that, that we could phrase that. He, he strikes me as somebody who, yes, he's very aggressive. Yes, he's tough. Yes, he, he gets back up off the floor when he's knocked down. He he plays with that that energy, that mentality that you were talking about. But he also strikes me as somebody who is smart enough to know when to choose his battles appropriately. And that I think is also going to better serve him in the NBA. I, I don't see him as somebody who's going to get too mad to the point where he gets himself in too many dumb possessions in terms of fouls, right? Like he, I, I don't see him having a temper at all. I still no. think he keeps himself pretty even keeled on the court. So I, I would agree. I think he'll avoid those situations. For sure. For sure. So with Chet, he stands right now as number one on my board and on yours as well. I can't speak for you who's number two, but for me, it's Paolo Bancaro. And uh, this is a, a pretty firm number two for us right now. I, I think that that's, you know, uh, maybe a half step above anybody else in this class is Chet and Paolo, the two guys that are jockeying for number one right now. Um, they're neck and neck in a lot of ways, and, and they bring a lot of different traits to the table, right? Uh, Holmgren is the defensive guy, a really good shot blocker, but also a fantastically efficient player on offense, despite some of the concerns about half-court creation or about his body and, and his frame. Bancaro is kind of the opposite, right? He is this silky smooth, really polished, strong-bodied six-foot-ten, six-foot-eleven forward who yep. has upside to be able to shoot it eventually, 
but doesn't necessarily have a modern NBA position that he defends really clearly. There's so much IQ there. There's improvement that we saw throughout the year in terms of his passing and his playmaking. And for a lot of people, I think that was the missing link to bump him up into the number one spot and why in a lot of the conversations that I'm having, he's starting to overtake Chet in some of those ways. Is Bancaro number two on your board right now? He is. He, he is. And it's, it's, it's been a close call with Paolo. He, he has never been lower than three on my board all year. I, I think, and, and we'll get into some of the other guys, but I think just his combination of size and skill is what the NBA values so much. Right. And these three guys that we have now at the top, they, they, they are the epitome of that. The NBA sits at that intersection. And I think that it will be a disservice to actually take someone over one of those three guys, in my opinion, but Paolo, Paolo really helped himself in the tournament. I think you and I would agree on that. We were commenting about it on, on to anybody who follows us on Twitter. We were all, we were saying some of the same things, but you're going to hate me. I'm going to throw another question at you. I know this is, this is your podcast and you, you want my opinion, but I, I've said to you multiple times, you're a very humble guy, but you are smarter than me in a lot of respects, coach. I want your opinion about his defense because some people have nitpicked it. Some people have called him a bad defender. I don't think he's a bad defender. I think his problem is that he gets a little bored on that end of the floor, and I think he's more concerned about making a play on the ball versus doing the right thing and sitting down and actually worrying about positioning himself in the right place at the right time and playing defense. Yeah. He, he gets caught on a lot of these possessions where he, he plays an angle to kind of let his man get by him a little bit so that he can go up and he, he can make that fun block. But the problem is, is that if you want to argue with me and say that he's playing a style of defense that would benefit having a backline defender like Mark Williams and you're trying to play more of this funnel style of defense, like fine. But he'll, he'll do that and he'll get caught with his pants around his ankles when he won't have Mark Williams there like there'll be possessions where mark williams is trying to uh guard somebody he's trying to go out on the perimeter and like put you know ha have his arm on like a three-point shooter and he, he'll be away from the basket and Powell will still do it and i'll be like dude why are you letting this guy get by you there's no one there to stop yeah. him at the basket and it's those kinds of things that drive me crazy like i don't think he's that slow i i think he's actually fleeter of foot than people would give him credit for i think he's smarter than a lot of people would give him credit for I it's, it's to me, it's just the habits and it drives me nuts. Like, do you think that somebody's going to be able to coach that stuff out of them? Or do you think that these are real concerns that he's probably going to carry with him over the course of his career? Yeah. Oh, um, yeah. So a, a lot of things to, to tackle in that uh, one, I agree. He's a really smart defender. I think that he's going to be able to transition well to the NBA um, where some of the concerns are, are overblown. I agree. Where I struggle is you hit the nail on the head with the funneling stuff, right? He loves to kind of bait guys in and say, I'm either going to block you from behind or trust that Mark Williams is right there to, to block the shot with me. And the trouble in that, when you're guarding the perimeter, you can't see what's happening behind you. Yeah. So you are you are trusting that you are always going to have this specific type of rim protection uh, available. And look, teams and coaches are just too smart right now. They find ways to alleviate that pressure. You can't always bank on it. You have to be able 
to you know move your feet and put your chest in front of somebody's drive every now and then. And I, I don't think he does that enough. Where I become a Palo defender is, uh, pun intended, is not necessarily just in kind of the, the habits that he has, but that I don't think the scheme at Duke was the right one for him. Because outside of Mark Williams, they did a lot of switching on the perimeter. They had size and brawn with, you know, Keels and Griffin and Wendell Moore. Like there were a lot of, there was a lot of length, a lot of physical strength to it where those guys would not be in trouble if they were posted up by a four man. And I think that that exposed Paolo on the perimeter in ways that the right NBA team is not going to do, right? He's going to get in somewhere and be the franchise player and somebody that they're building their entire organization around. And they're going to say, all right, in order to get the most out of Paolo Bancaro in a playoff setting, we need to build a team that has some rim protection behind a couple other athletic defenders, doesn't necessarily switch everything, but can in certain matchups. Like yep. that context to me is more important than nitpicking one or two particular habits that Paolo has at this period of time. He's a smart help defender. I agree. I wish he were a little bit more in tuned and, and wanted to defend at a higher level. But as I have done this year after year, I've started to worry less about those types of options or guys who do that, especially if they carry a heavy offensive load in college in the way that Paolo has. So uh, I, again, I agree with the kind of thesis that, you know, Paolo's defensive concerns are a little overblown, but kind of for different reasons. Sure. And, and that makes a lot of sense. And I think the, the point that you just landed on through all of that, that you came back around to was if the offense is as good as we would project it to be, then some of those concerns kind of unfortunately have to, to go away. You kind of have to live with, with the positives that you are getting, which that there is a lot to like about the offense. Um, I do love, he's obviously really good around the mid post. He's really good at facing up, creating off the bounce, getting into some of those jab fakes, those ball fakes, the, the, the stutter rip as everybody liked to coin earlier in the season, the spin move going downhill. I mean, he has so much, in his bag that he can go to. And then, yeah, as you, I'm sure you would want to get into the passing flashes that he showed the second half of the year. I mean, come on, who, who doesn't love a really good passer downhill uh, off a live dribble, right? Everybody loves that stuff. Yep. He's, he's so underrated as a playmaker and and it, it bothers me that it took kind of the later part of the season where the actual counting metrics of assists started to catch up for, in order for people to see that he was a good, good passer, but over his final 14 games, he averaged 4.1 assists and 2.2 turnovers, basically a two to one assist to turnover ratio being what, six ten, six eleven. 11. Yep. That's so hard to do when you're a freshman, so hard to do, especially if you're the focal point of defensive game plans in a great conference like the ACC, which I guess a down year regular season wise, but didn't they make up for that in the tournament and prove that it's actually a solid conference this year? I don't want to oh, get hundred percent. I mean, UNC exploding the way that they did Virginia tech pushing through the ACC tournament and playing the way that they did Notre Dame winning a, a tournament game, like yeah. really good, really good league in ways that even I was uh, a little too sour on earlier in the year, but I love Paolo's instincts for passing. 
he is, he has one habit that I don't love offensively, which is he doesn't make quick decisions off the catch. He's much more a catch survey the defense and then decide what he's going to do and do it. But after he makes that decision, whether it's a stutter rip, you know, any of those complex moves that you just, you just mentioned, he reads second line defenders incredibly well. He's got a deep bag of tricks to get by his man or create yeah. space for a jumper. And if he either draws a double team or he just breaks through his man and another one commits to him, he makes the right basketball play pretty much every single time. And of these top four guys that we're going to talk about here tonight, Paolo is the one that I haven't done a full scout on yet. Uh, you know, the, his season wrapped up the latest out of any of these. And I'm, I'm really excited to dive back into the tape holistically. But, man, I'm so impressed by what we saw over him from him over the final month, month and a half of the year. The, the interesting thing about Paolo, and, and I don't know if you've arrived at this type of conclusion or, or not, like I said, you still have a full scouting report to do, which I will definitely want to check that out. Um, he's getting a lot of these comments that people think he can be this, this pretty awesome inverted pick and roll type of ball handler in time. Um, and, and to an extent you can agree with that because of some of the passing flashes that we could talk about. I don't know if I want him in those positions at the top of the court, because I think that's going to encourage a lot more of the long range shot taking. And I want Paolo to be as focused inside the arc as possible, whether that's getting downhill, whether that's catching the ball in the post, whether that's operating from the elbow. I want him more focused on those areas because there's so much that he can do from a footwork standpoint, from a physicality standpoint. I think if you encourage him to operate more from the top of the court where he's, he's more inclined to take jump shots, especially if he is involved in a screen and roll defense goes under, he's much more inclined to let the jumper fly. I think that's really when you can get in trouble with Paolo because he, he's indecisive when he does look to take those shots. Now, very tail end of the season, he was much more confident shooting off the catch, which is great, but you can tell sometimes going to some of those things off of the dribble he's a little indecisive and just, I don't want to put him in those positions to even have to think about doing that. I want him to either look at making a play inside the arc for himself or for somebody else. I, I, I want to take away as much of the jump shooting and not make that an emphasis on his game. That that's my line of thinking. What do you think coach? Yeah, I'm, I, I actually disagree. Um, I'm okay. okay. I'm okay with the jump shooting. So over his final 11 games, he was 45% from three. And that's both catch and shoots and pull-ups uh, mixed in there. I agree to an extent. I think that guys who are incredibly physically gifted, strong, really good at creating separation and getting downhill need to make sure that they don't become reliant on their jump shot and always use that as a bailout because the defense is going to tempt you to try to do that. You've got to be smarter than that. You can't take the bait every single time. But I do believe his jump shot is going to be a really – impactful threat at the next level i keep i'm not a big player comparison guy i think you know that uh nathan i don't i don't love coming out here and saying oh this guy reminds me of so-and-so who was an nba player yep. before. but i did a series uh playbook for the pros at the beginning of uh, december i believe which was looking at some of the tendencies that the top players in this year's draft class have and maybe some nba players or sets around those players that have mirrored what we've seen. And with Bancaro, 
I kept being drawn to Blake Griffin's last season with the Clippers and time in Detroit where, you know, he was still super athletic and could get to the rim, but his athleticism was starting to dwindle a little bit. He had added the three pointer to his arsenal and was used a ton as a creator. Oftentimes it was out of the pick and roll. Sometimes it was those snug pick and rolls where he starts in a post up and the five man comes and just sits on his, his defenders inside shoulder great in isolations at the elbow trailing threes and making plays out of there, just inverted wonky actions with a guard like Chris Paul. And I'm thinking to myself, this would be perfect for a guy like Bancaro where the threat of his shot and taking enough of them is a necessity to make it a credible threat. That I, I agree with that part a hundred percent. It's not yeah. that I don't want him to take any jump shots at all. I just, I just don't want him to fall in love with it is, yeah, is my point. No doubt. And, and I think Anthony Edwards faced a lot of the same criticisms, uh, you know, two years ago going through the, his draft process of this is the most athletic guy in the draft class. Why is he taking 60% of his shots from three when he's only 28% from there? Right. And, and I think part of it is the cat and mouse game sometimes of you've got to take enough of them to force defenders to close out to you, which then allows your athleticism to really pop and be functional. And I think Bancaro is going to need to play with the ball in his hands because he's just so damn good, which means he has to play with the ball in his hands in areas where the three pointer can be a threat. Uh, I don't shy away from it that much. I think he's going to be able to do it at a pretty high level, not saying 40% off the bounce, but you know, enough to be respected. And because of that, I, I just, I view him as the most pristine, you know, offensive guy in this class. Uh, he's not quite Cade level. He's not quite Jalen Green level from last year, even for me, but a really, really good offensive guy that I think I'd have no problem being the top option to score on an NBA franchise. No, I agree. And notice that e- even when I was making some of those comments, we would classify those as a nitpick. You and yeah. I did not say yeah. that there's yeah. anything on the court that he necessarily can't do mm-hmm. offensively, with that, which I, I think is huge because some of these other guys that we can put in the conversation – do have legitimate weaknesses on offense. He does not really have one. And, and the fact that more of his limitations are on the defensive side of the ball, when this is becoming more and more of an offense, your turn, my turn type of league, especially in the playoffs, which was kind of always been that way in the playoffs, but you, you get, you get what I'm saying. Like those are the types of players that NBA teams want to take with the first overall pick, which is why it would, it would not shock me in the slightest matter of fact, if you had to make me put money down in Vegas, I'd probably bet that Paolo would go number one at this point. I agree with you, and I agree with you, not just because of the tendencies of drafters, but because I think he fits more franchises and what they're looking for that are going to have picks at the top of the draft right now, right? And no matter who wins the lottery, I think Paolo's a fit pretty much anywhere. Yeah, I, I would agree. Although I can argue Chet's also, just not in the same way. Chet is also technically a fit everywhere, just not in the same way. Right. All right. So Nathan, you mentioned Jabari Smith earlier as a guy who once stood atop your draft board. And uh, he's somebody that has continued to stay in discussions for that top overall pick. But I'm actually pretty turned off by that notion. Uh, He has never risen above third on our board. We just finished our scouting report for him earlier this week and saw a couple of concerning things to the point where, yes, this is official. We have moved him down to fourth on our board. What is the argument for keeping Jabari third? Like, tell me why I'm wrong or why you at one point gave him some consideration for number one overall, because I'm, uh, I'm not souring 
too far, right? He's still in the top five on my board, but I definitely think that he's on the outside of the group that we've just discussed. Just shot makers that can do it at his level, at his size. They just don't come around as often as we'd like them to. And Mm -hmm. There's points where it seems like it doesn't matter how many hands that dude has. That dude was making jump shots during the season where he had like three people in his face at one time and he was still falling away and it didn't matter. Like we're talking perfect arc, perfect switch on the jump shot. Like those guys are just such incredible. And maybe this is why you would want to knock them down. Complimentary pieces to have. He's not, he's not a primary offensive option. He's not your number one player on offense he's not doing the same things off the bounce like Paolo can do and that that is what limits him and I know that you're going to get into some of it is what you and I were talking about offline a little bit his stiffness and how upright he is absolutely comes back to the ball handling it's not even that we can say he doesn't have a handle the dude really has trouble dribbling the basketball like like you'll see him bringing the ball up the floor and he's like hunched over like halfway, like trying to just dribble his right. Like, Oh my God, like I better not lose the basketball, like off my foot or out of bounds or something like that. Like that's a legitimate area of concern. And he can go to like a one dribble pull up in the half court. But if you ask him to go like three dribbles and then all of a sudden, like he has to try and make something happen off of that. It doesn't look natural. It looks a little uncoordinated. I guess the thing is, are we possibly overselling that statement that these are things that he won't do in his career? Because I, listen, I, I do not watch a ton of these guys, their high school film before they get to college. Cause I'm just so focused on every draft that's in front of me. But what I did watch of Jabari Smith in high school, I saw a lot of the standstill jump shooting. I saw the catch and shoot game. I saw the post fadeaways, which were beautiful. Mm-hmm. And that was a selling point for me very early on in the process. Like if this guy can do these fallaways out of the post like this, we got to pay more attention to him. I really didn't see a lot of that off the bounce type of stuff in the high school game either. And is it a byproduct of he just, because of the physical stuff, he won't be able to do it. Or is it because he really hasn't had the opportunity to like go out there and experiment for extended amounts of time trying to do those types of things is your answer a little bit of both is it one or the other like where are you at i think option c for me is he's just so damn good at shooting that it doesn't matter it doesn't right? matter like, like i my, so how can you answer that question and then but not want to have him there coach like oh i know so all right uh, yeah a, a lot a lot goes into this with jabari right yep. a lot goes into it um my entire draft philosophy for very much at the top of boards, right? Guys who are going to be building blocks of your organization, the number one, maybe number two options on your team. It's about space creation. Guys who are able to separate from their defender, cause defenses to collapse, find ways to involve those role players. And you can teach the right decision-making, but some of the natural skills that guys have are in drawing extra defenders in creating space jabari creates zero space but he does two things incredibly well number one he finishes plays when others create space for him he's an elite knockdown shooter and if he gets chased off the line because of that he can take a one dribble pull up into the mid-range and knock it down with great efficiency yep 
Number two, what he does incredibly well is he makes shots where he doesn't have any space. And yes. that's a really valued commodity, especially in late clock situations, in you know whatever it is that you might need. Hey, just go get us two points right now. Can you do that? Yeah, throw the ball to him in the mid post. He doesn't even have to take a dribble. Maybe he takes one and shimmies and fades away, but he's 6'10 and he can shoot over the top of guys. It's a smooth, consistent release. He's proven enough this year. He doesn't need that space. Now, when we're looking at other guys on the board who are not just really good space creators, which I think Paolo is, I think Jaden Ivey is, and we'll talk about I was going to say, bring, bring him in, coach. I know where yep. you're going. Bring, bring him in. Those are two elite space creators. I also think that they are elite finishers at the next level, whether it's Bancaro's just ability to bulldoze guys over and get to the basket and create easy dump downs for others. Like hidden in this with Jabari is that I don't think he has a great feel for the game. I don't love his passing. I think that he's a little really? bit. Really, I, I don't. I, I don't. I, I, I'm, not, I'm not saying it's great. I think it's. I think it's. I think it's good. I think it's good. Maybe you're not there. I think it's good. I'm not. I would there. say phenomenal, but it's a lot of the boneheaded things, right? Like you know, my background is is as a coach. I, I try yeah. to avoid those plays that cause me to pull my hair out. Right. He's getting a defensive rebound and just throwing it to the other team because he's antsy to get rid of it on an outlet. It bothers me inbound plays, whether it's in full court pressure situations or in baseline out plays when he was the inbounder, he kind of throws it away like way too frequently. Those little areas bother me a lot. And I, I try not to let kind of the, the coaching side get in the way of the long-term evaluation side, right? He's nowhere near a finished product. How much of this is correctable? But with Jabari, I... I keep getting hung up on the physical stuff like you talked about. If he is so reliant on his jump shot right now, how much more of his offensive game can be added? I don't see that really being a, a great answer. Uh, I don't think there's a lot left for him to gain because I don't believe in his handle. I don't believe physically he's going to be able to be that much quicker off the bounce. And much like Bancaro, he has that tendency to catch and hold a little bit. I don't like that. I don't like that as a, again, we talk about playmaking and passing. Being a ball stopper is part of that, especially if you're not going to take anybody off the bounce. And a guy like Jabari would be incredibly well served to have a, a just a decent, not even a great, just a decent catch and rip type of game where he's on the perimeter. He knows his threat as a shooter. He catches it and immediately goes to the basket. But he doesn't have that right now. He catches, yeah. he surveys, he holds, and because he doesn't have anything resembling a quick first step or the ability to drive past guys with complex moves, he becomes stuck in the mud, and he's reliant on that dribble, one dribble pull-up or those tough shots. And as I always say, it is a great thing to be able to make tough shots. It is a curse to have to be a tough shot maker. Yep. And that's where I think the tiebreaker goes to some of these other guys for me. It, it's not dropping Jabari Smith all the way down draft boards, right? Like sure. let's not overreact to this. He's four on my board right now. And I think he's going to stay there, but it's the fact that he's not a primary guy. Like you talked about at the very beginning. And I don't see the upside and the avenues for him to become more of a guy who attacks the rim. There are only three guys in the NBA this year 
who have taken as many of their half-court shots as jumpers who are 6'10 or taller. Kevin Durant, Daniil Gallinari, and Maxi Kleber, right? Like, I don't think that he's Durant because he's just not shifty enough with the ball. He's not that really fluid athlete. He's, he's a solid athlete, but it's very clunky. Uh, I just, I can't, he's better than Gallinari, but the risk of him being deployed in that type of role makes me not want to take him in the top two or three in this class. Is he the easiest guy out of the top four that we can talk about to take out of the game offensively? Cause I, 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 I guess it's probably between him and Chet. Yeah. I, I think, it's, I, I think it's Chet. I, you think you do think it's Chet? I do. I think that when you, because it's a product of how the game is played, if you slow it down and put it in the half court, I think Chet suffers. I think Jaden Ivey suffers, but long-term you, you draft Ivy with the understanding that his first step is everything else is going to translate to the half court as he gets more reps in it. I just, yeah, Chet is the one who I think struggles the most and has the, the easiest amount of time to take him out of a, out of a game from a scouting perspective. Jabari, because he is a floor spacer, and at the very least, you just put him in a corner and he's going to knock it down at 48% clip. Like that has value. It, it's hard to take him completely out of it. But again, if you're relying on him to be your primary in the half court and create offense for others, I think he's the easiest one to take out of it. I guess, uh, unless you really want to get into some of the defense, I, I, I think the thing that still holds true with me with Jabari is that. I didn't know that he could do some of the things that he did this year at like a borderline elite level. Like I didn't even know that he could do some of those things. So it still kind of just makes me wonder that if there is more there to unlock, it wonders, makes me wonder how much better he can really get. And I guess it's, it's, it's that allure of the unknown that I've kind of touched on with, with a few other players this past week, but it's, it's that, that kind of, wants me to keep him there at three although i will say the next guy we're going to get into the argument you're going to have it's 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 really fascinating coach i just before we do that though i just i just think it's so fascinating that everyone's been trying to put this guy into that top three conversation all year and it's not just that it's a race between him and like one of the guys that we've talked about before him. It's that each one of those three guys has kind of had their fall from consensus out of that top three. Like first it was Jabari for a little bit when he had that cold streak at Auburn in like the middle of SEC play. Then it was Paolo because he wasn't playing defense and people were nitpicking some of that. And he had the Syracuse game where he just shot really poorly from the floor. Now it seems like it's Chet for, for whatever reason, I guess people are like staring at him for too long and looking at the body too hard. And they're like pulling him out of that conversation. But it seems like all three of those guys have had their spots out and people have been trying to shove Jay Nivey in there. I haven't gotten there yet. I, I, I haven't been one of those people to put him in my top three, but that may be why this race is so fascinating because it seems like everybody has had their chance to shine as like, quote unquote, the guy. That's a great way of, of putting it here. Uh, you know, I'll close kind of the book on Jabari as we move towards, towards Ivy, which will be a fascinating conversation. Uh, I think drafting and setting personal boards 
is about understanding, for lack of a better term, what your cup of tea is, right? Yep. Like I will say time and time again, there are guys who I can easily see the upside in, but I see considerable downside or enough flags all over the place where I just say, hey, all the power to somebody else if they want to take that risk. But at this spot on my board, I'm not comfortable being the guy who does that. If I were an NBA general manager, I would not risk my livelihood on that. And part of the reason Jabari out of these four ends up being the one for me not to put that risk on is because I know my lack of expertise comes in kind of biomechanical changes. What happens to guys' bodies as they continue to work? I am nowhere near an expert in how I'm 30 years old and 165 pounds, right? Like I have no idea how to put on athleticism or muscle on guys in a really functional way. And because of that, it's harder for me to say, well, once Jabari does X, Y, or Z, his hips are going to drop a little bit lower. He can add some explosiveness and quickness. Then the ball handling works from there. Like it's hard for me to fathom that pathway forward. Therefore, he's probably going to be the one guy that I would say, I'd rather steer clear of him and take the risk on somebody else. So why Jaden Ivy then, right? Like that's, that's kind of what this comes back to. Why is it that Ivy is the one guy who's rising? Cause he does have a couple of those concerns for me growth throughout the season. Yep. I have not to say that you turn a blind eye on guys, right? But uh, you develop a reputation on somebody, you see where they are. You check in on the stats in a couple of games as the season goes on. I don't have the time to, to watch every single Purdue game. As we get into the postseason here and we're starting to dive into those, a lot of the conceptions that I had about him as a prospect in January started to disappear by the time February and March came around. His pull-up jumper, some of the step backs that he made, his efficiency at the basket, really, really good. I had a lot of concerns about his shot being a little bit too of a set jumper as opposed to this. He's a freak athlete, right? Like that's the one thing with Ivy that stands out above many other guards. He is a freak athlete like John Morant, Derek Rose, Jaden Ivy, three springiest, just yep. a one top tier athletic guards that I've seen. And he doesn't use that on his jump shot. It's a very slow, slower release. He doesn't get a lot of lift on his jumper. And that's in catch and shoot settings where when you watch him in the mid range, you're like, okay, this guy for as athletic as he is, he needs to get a little bit more lift on his jumper. Is he ever going to turn into a, a good mid range scorer? He hasn't added the mid range yet, but the self creation out to three is starting to pop. I was always worried about the way that Purdue played, right? Two big guys that they continually feed the ball into Matt Painter has a fetish for stagger screens and like really complex actions. We're not seeing a ton of spread pick and roll for Jaden Ivey. But as the season went on, Illinois and Michigan back-to-back -back games, they played a yeah. lot more through Ivy in the pick and roll in late game situations. Started to go to it a little bit more on some other occasions late year. I thought that he wasn't going to be a great playmaker. Thought that he wasn't going to play in the spread pick and roll a ton. Went back and watched the film. Purdue actually did a nice job spacing the floor around him. And he made solid reads. He's yeah. not a good enough passer yet but his mind is where it needs to be. And, and I'm, I'm okay with that. Um, you know, my, my complaint about Ivy early in the process was, is he going to be a good enough half court scorer, particularly in late clock situations? He's athletic enough to get to the rim, 
But if the rim is not available, is he a good enough scorer and or passer to lead an offense? And I have switched from maybe to I believe so over this last week to the point where, yeah, now I feel more comfortable in putting him above a guy like Jabari. A lot to unpack, an yeah. absolute lot to unpack. Um, so I'm still not in love with the pull-up jump shot. Mm-hmm. I know that he made some of those threes, like some of those step-back threes, which I would agree with you. They were absolutely awesome to see. I still question those shots from a mechanic standpoint. And mm-hmm. one of the reasons why I wanted to go see Purdue against Rutgers earlier in the season was I, I wanted to watch the warm-ups. I wanted to see his preparation. I wanted to see that shot up close, right? He's so much more comfortable in my eyes off the catch when he has that extra second to set himself up and then he can get into the shot off the dribble. I don't know, coach. I, I, I personally don't see it getting there. Okay. Here's the thing that we're going to come back to though. Am I making too big of a deal about it? Is this a guy that once he gets into the NBA the court's going to be so much more open for him that he's just going to keep getting downhill and he will literally be able to get to the basket whenever he wants to the point where some of this stuff is not going to matter. Like the spot up shooting is the biggest weakness on a synergy chart for a reason because of some of the things that we talked about, but everywhere else, whether it's an on ball play type or an off ball play type, because he's had to learn how to play off the ball because of those bigs and feeding everybody in the post, he rates out pretty dang well good to excellent like virtually everywhere else that includes scoring out of the pick and roll as well as distributing out of the pick and roll so are we really leaning too much into that stuff or do you think i I don't know because when you get to the nba and you get in these late clocks it's like that's something a guard needs you need to be able to knock down shots in those mid-range situations at this point but can we make the exceptions for that one to two percent upper tier athlete that Ivy actually is. Yeah. And that's right. I always kind of go back to, you know, why complain that you don't have a pool when you live on the ocean, right? Like if, if, <laughs> if you don't need something because everything that you have is just good enough that it doesn't matter, then why, why complain or overly focus on it? Uh, Ivy's going to be able to get to the rim a lot more than other guards in those yep. late one-on-one situations. We have seen a guy like John Morant not be an elite three-point shooter. It has gotten so much better this year, which is why he and Memphis have made the jump from, you know, bottom tier playoff group to he's an MVP candidate. They're the second best team in the NBA. Because when you add that dimension, it changes everything. Yep. But Morant was still an all-star without it. And, and that's where I've started to come around on Ivy. Like uh, until this week, I had Ivy fourth and kind of in a tier four to seven, four to eight, um, and did not believe that the jump shot was really going to come around. I had a ton of concerns. It was only this week and going back and watching the film, seeing a little bit about the mechanics, just seeing how impressive of an athlete he is, that leads me to say, like, hey, it may not matter. He's just, he's really good. And if he can knock him down from three, that's going to do enough to draw defenses to him that he can at least dribble around big guys and get to the rim. And whether we like it or not, in terms of how it looks, what he does have that's similar to Morant, he has the runner. He did not take a lot of them this year, but he has it in his bag. He's 14 to 32 on the runner. That's huge. 
that's something that honestly, I would want him to focus more on that than necessarily being the pull-up mid-range type of jump shooter that we would ideally like him to be. As long as he can find some way to punish the defense when they sag off, they give him space. Once he gets around that screen up top, I think that's really the end result that we want. And if he gets that floater, if he's able to bring it back even a little further, he's able to have one of those runners kind of like a, like a Trey Young type, type of floater, Emmanuel quickly, Maxi. I think that would be the weapon, in my opinion, I would want him to focus more on developing. I don't know if you, you agree or disagree with that. No, I do. I do. I think that that's, you know, he has kind of two speeds, right? He's either full speed or really slow and surveying and, and trying to play through hostage dribbles. I think in those situations, a floater is going to be more impactful for him than an actual yep. pull-up jumper. So I, I, I do agree with you there. And the, the last thing that I do want to say here on, on Ivy is that personally, it's it's hard for me to put Jaden Ivy in my top three because I coached at his rival high school. I coached against him when he was a youngster. Like th- there's been a lot of, of connections that I have to uh, his rivals throughout the last five or six years of his life. So man, like it, the personal side of me doesn't want to be putting Jaden Ivy third overall, but just going back and watching the film, like it, I was... I was really impressed in ways that I didn't think I was going to be about his long-term upside as a half-court scorer. Does the defense scare you at all? And I know that some people have different answers to that question because of how much they value guard defense. I haven't seen Ivy fight through one screen in, in my entire time of watching him. And that, that stuff does concern me. And depending on the team that he has around him, sometimes you're able to mitigate some of those concerns, but I don't know that that can, it doesn't concern me as much as like, Oh my God, like I think Jane Ivy sucks defense. Like I'm going to knock him down my board for that reason. Like I'm not going to do that, but I, I think there is enough concern there for it to at least be highlighted in the scouting report. Two things for me, just based off of, of watching him over the last couple of days here. One, he actually did a really good job getting through complex actions like down screens into dribble handoffs and, and chasing from behind. And, and that's kind of point number two. He's so athletic that he can, recover he can recover and contest these shots in ways that you can't just teach right and i I guess if there's a third point to make which now contradicting myself there there are three points (laughs) he's big enough six four six five with a six ten wingspan he can play the two guard where if your concern is hey playing you know at the point of attack defensively he's just going to get picked apart defending screen after screen after screen you can play him as an off-ball defender and, and construct the right roster around him where you're not giving anything up as a result Makes sense to me, coach. All right, Nathan, we we promised a top five here. We did. We've talked on guys one through four for us. Uh, is Jaden Ivey in your top four? I, I should yeah. ask. He's, he, he's four, and it wouldn't surprise me if, like, a few weeks from now I'm sitting in the same spot you are with, with him at three. Wouldn't, wouldn't surprise me. We'll, we'll revisit this as we get closer to June. But, uh, you know, we did promise the top five, so I want to make sure that, that we each add – in here, somebody else that we have currently locked into that spot. Uh, I'm going to let you go first as the guest of the podcast. Oh, no, come on. I wanted you to go first because I had a question. I had a question. Um, All right. I'll I'll go first then. I'll I'll take that on me. So there are three guys that I'm currently considering here. One is Jaden Hardy, who, as you know, I have been super high on throughout this entire draft process, just based on the archetype, one of the most overused words in our draft space. But that's that's essentially what you get your draft Twitter bingo card out there. That's that's right. That's <laughs> right, baby. 
Jaden Hardy, uh, Benedict Matherin, who I think has flown under the radar as having a lot of creation potential at the next level. And then Shaden Sharp, who is the ultimate wild card in this class. It seems like he's leaning towards at least figuring out if this is going to be the right move for him, how high he would go if he were to declare in this draft. I do think he eventually ends up declaring this year. And, and you know, I just don't have a ton of expertise or experience watching him. So I'm waiting until he makes that declaration to really dive in and try to figure out where to slot him while knowing like, Hey, what I have seen, what I do know, he's a, he's a freak talent that probably needs to be mentioned in this conversation. But uh, yeah, he Matherin and Hardy are kind of the three guys toggling around in that area on my board. So Matherin's definitely in that range. Um, I would, I would still put Keegan Murray in that range. Um, Shaden Sharp. I just heard about Sharp this week. I'm assuming you wanted to have a few words on him. That's why you're here, baby. Why is AJ Griffin not in that conversation for you? That was my oh, that was my question. Why is he it. not there? It's the cup of tea thing again. Um, I don't believe AJ Griffin is ever going to shoot 46 percent from three on a season. I so, I don't I do not think that will happen again. I think that he has lost a lot of athleticism. I, I saw him play four or five, maybe six games when he was in high school because I was recruiting one of his teammates. And the things he was doing on a high school court, he looks drastically different as a player. Is he a good enough passer? A, maybe, but he's definitely... I'll, I'll give you a no on that one. I'll give you a no. Yeah, yeah. I don't think that he has the the IQ to be able to thrive in an NBA level where not only is his athleticism gone, but he's not going to physically bully every single guy that he faces kind of like he did this year at Duke. Um, I, I think he's a good shooter, but not a great shooter like he showed this year. I have a lot of defensive worries about him of all of the guys we've talked about tonight. Uh, AJ Griffin gives me the biggest challenge on the defensive end. And again, I would agree some step back potential, some self-creation things like really good finisher around the basket when he gets he there. He hits man the hang time he gets on some of those mid-range pull-ups man just make you go if he's doing that at the NBA level like th those are star shots that mm -hmm. he's hitting off the bounce. Some of them like really are star quality shots. They are. And and again, I I can see the argument for why a guy like this is going to be in somebody else's top 5. But for the defensive stuff, for the lack of feel as a playmaker, for my concerns about his athleticism and thinking that he's never going to shoot this high of a level again, it's just it's not a risk that I would be willing to take. I actually have A.J. Griffin, and brace yourself for this one, outside my lottery. <laughs> wow. Oh, my goodness. Oh, my. So you really, you really think he's not going to get enough of it back, huh? You think it's... It's, it's not a risk what we got to live with, not a risk that I'd be willing to take. Right. And draft boards are personal preferences of orders they that are. you take guys in. Right. And it, at, it's not going to be in the first 14 picks where the reward is worth the risk to me. So I know I, I just, I, I let out my sign. I can, I can throw a Holy smokes in there too, but it's <laughs> it, it, at the same time, it, it doesn't surprise me as much because if you're going off the argument that you just laid out that, maybe he has lost a little too much and he doesn't have the IQ to back up more of what he lost. 
I understand that. And I think that's a legitimate, legitimate reality that not only you and I have to live with, but also people in front offices making these decisions. Like I think Jeremy Wu mocking AJ Griffin on 10 on his latest mock draft today was, I think more of an indication of where front offices are probably still at. I think they probably have him in that like 10 to, to 15 range. I don't think he's as high as people have him uh, on Twitter where we can right. just say things and we don't have to live with the consequences. Um, I will say my answer is Shane Sharp right now. Okay. However, there's one other name that I could insert into this conversation. My co-host, Stephen Gillespie, has been pushing this damn agenda. The more I think about it, Coach, the more I have to entertain it. Dyson Daniels. The more I sit back and I think about it. I, I just have a feeling I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go back and rewatch some of the second half of the G League Ignite season where he was actually – not only hitting open catch and shoot three point shots, but he was also hitting some shots off the bounce. He was getting into the rim much more frequently. We already know about some of the passing, the things he can do out of pick and roll. And then he's for my money, he would be the best wing defender in the class. Like you start putting a package like that together at six, seven, which I know he's listed at six, six. I think enough people have said he's grown six, seven. I was literally like 10 feet away from him in Delaware. Like I would also concur. He's six, seven, like he's definitely bigger than what he's listed at. You start to put together that type of package. I don't know. I, I if some team took him in like the top five, top six, I I, I wouldn't bat. I, I wouldn't take him as high as four. Like Stephen was trying to make an argument, could Oklahoma City take him at four because he might be a better fit with some of the pieces they have in place. That that's a little too rich for me. But like now that we're starting to put him in like that five, six, seven, eight range, I don't know if it's crazy anymore. Um, but that's not the answer you were looking for. You were looking for number no. five. And, and no, no, that's fair. Shane, Shane Sharpest would be my number five at this current moment in time. I just did the written piece for no ceilings, but I was able to break down not, not a lot of film. Um, I didn't necessarily have enough time to dive into some of the, the U16 stuff that, that Instat has available and mainly focused on the, the, the dream city stuff. It's only, only 12 games. This was because of the lack of film was probably the most challenging thing I've written um, in, in quite a while, to be perfectly honest with the audience, because you have to be very careful. It's not just the lack of film. It's also not being too high because it's high school level competition. Also not being too low because it's high school level competition where we're evaluating for the pros, not just him moving on to play at Kentucky right. next year. Um, very tough. However, the positives are very positive. We're talking about star quality type of offense that he brings to the table. I wish he was a I don't know if I would call him a bad passer, but I wish he would look to pass more to kind of break up some of the offense that we see from him. He is way too comfortable letting it fly and pick and roll, regardless of if he's hot or not, um, from, from when the defense just gives him a little bit of space and he's just so eager to shoot it from three-point range. At the same time, I kind of brought this up in my written piece. If you are that lethal of a jump shooter, and you have the option of shooting that shot versus getting downhill and going to the basket and facing whatever consequences you have down there. A lot of guys tend to fall in love with the jump shot. So it's, it's especially at his age, I don't necessarily blame him for some of that. Um, he is a top shelf athlete. I'd be very cautious to use the word elite, but I'll use, I'll use top shelf to be very kind. Um, teams are going to have to be patient with him for some of the IQ stuff of the passing that I talked about. Um, He's a very good off-ball player, but I'd say the defense 
you're concerned about AJ Griffin playing defense. I'm concerned with Shane Sharp playing defense in his rookie season in the NBA. Like I think if you take Shane top five, I'll give him a top five grade right now, but it has to be with the caveat that you're going to, you're going to have to wait for this kid. Like he is, he is not going to be a rookie sensation, even like Jalen green in the second half of the year where all of a sudden he just explodes. Like it's, it's going to take some time to allow him to actually get good at enough other things on the court besides shooting to give his coach enough comfort to play him for extended minutes on the courts. It's going to be a work in progress, but in terms of pure upside star shot making, will he be good enough with the ball in his hands to possibly knock on the door of being a primary one day? I would have to answer that question with yes. And just taking a look at some of the other guys, the only other guy outside of that that I would have in that conversation, if you really don't believe in AJ Griffin would be Benedict Matherin. So I would take Shane, but it's, it's a close call. All right. Well, I'm, I'm looking forward to diving and obviously read your piece on Shane did a great job with it uh, as Thank always, you. but um, yeah, I'm looking forward to diving in myself, seeing a little bit more on him as we get to that point. But uh, yeah, Nathan, the godfather of no ceilings. Great to have you here. Some really lively conversation and debate on all of these guys. I hope our listeners took away that this is a fluid process and continues to be yes. a fluid process. Um, nothing is ever set in stone. And no matter how many times we say lock it in with certain guys, uh, it can always be unlocked at any point in time. Nathan, let the people know, what do you have going on right now? What's up in the future for no ceilings and where can we find you and your work? So you can find me on Twitter at draft deeper. You can subscribe to my podcast that coach has been kind enough to hop on wherever you get your podcasts. Absolutely find my writing at noceilingsnba.com. If you haven't read the Shane Sharp piece, highly encourage you to do so this coming week. I'm diving in. This is actually perfect. I get to announce this on your podcast. I'm right about Bryce McGowan's. So um, I'm, I'm bringing that guy to the table. Listen, there's, there's positives that I want to make sure I highlight. I'm also, I'm, I'm ready to bring the negatives to the light as well. Don't worry. There's, there's going to be plenty of both in there. He's who I'm working on next, but Coach, I can't thank you enough for having me on tonight to talk about the big guys. It's a big spot, a lot of pressure, but seriously, you are you are one of the best who does this in this space. I value your knowledge and everything you bring to the table from a written video and even a social media tweet standpoint. You just bring so much value to the space. So thank you so much for what you do. I appreciate you. Uh, always good to have you here. I know we've been talking about doing a home and home. So uh, this was the time we got you here on, on our home turf today. But uh, thank you so much for joining us, Nathan, and for all you uh, viewers and, and our audience out there. As a reminder, hashtag ban the take foul.